everybody. It's July 16th, 2017, and this is your episode 105 of At Percussion. I'm your host, Casey Cangelosi, and with me, as always, are Laurel Black. Hi. And Ben Charles. Hey, everybody. And Megan Arns. How's it going? Good. How are you? Good. Megan, do you know that today is the premiere of Game of Thrones? I didn't know, because I've never watched Game of Thrones. Thank you, Casey. Same. (laughs) (laughs) Sean, are you into Game of Thrones? I am not. Wow, you might be the first guest ever not into Game of Thrones. That's not true. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's true. I'm going to go with it. Are you going to have a watch party? Yeah, we are. That's where Laurel and I are going next. Nice. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we have a very consistent faculty watch party. Oh. Yeah, so it's like academic. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then write responses yeah it's like way serious episode. yeah yeah well guys our guest is the owner of gallant entertainment incorporated which provides drum lines for sports clients like the new england patriots the new york giants the jets the knicks the freaking celtics the rangers etc it's really really impressive what sean does also he has many corporate clients including abc nbc espn facebook and nike among others and he's there today as the director of programs for santa clara vanguard because they're rehearsing at mizzou right now is that right sean that is yeah we're fortunate enough to use the the big stadium here today it's fantastic cool cool well thanks for joining us and man can you just explain a little bit about what you do for us uh yeah so i um you know i uh, megan and i were just talking about this on the on the way over i um i i wear multiple hats right so um at my company i've i've I've, we formed the company about six years ago, six and a half years ago now, um, and it's it just took off like a wildfire in New York. Um, I started it while I was getting my master's at NYU in percussion performance, um, and during that, uh, you know, we we just snowballed. We started with the New York Knicks, then the Giants, um, and then just went from there. And uh, you know, New York is a very unique market. Um, as you guys know, as, as percussionists, um, there's a lot of work to do and a lot of corporations and parties and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, everybody likes percussion. So it was a, it's a perfect fit for that world. I'm very curious how you go from, I want to start this professional drumline to like, I'm going to call the New York giants about it. (laughs) (laughs) To Um, me, that is such like such a step. Will you talk about that? Right, right. So uh, I actually formed the company in October of that year, and we uh, we didn't do. And I say we because there were, there were three of us kind of from the beginning involved, um, and we didn't do anything public until April of that the next year. So during that time, it was all um, you know, obviously forming the corporation, but in addition to you know putting some marketing ideas together and some proposals together and. Uh, we knew exactly, you know, how we wanted to to, to go into meetings and um, kind of just really, you know, being as detail-oriented as possible. Um, the, uh, the way I, I actually, we got in the room with the Giants was uh, a cold call. Um, we cold called wow. the Giants and um, something read right uh, in the follow-up proposal that they, they really enjoyed. And um, we sat down with a meeting with them two weeks after the draft. And then um, it took off from there. So once the once we got the Giants contract, um, you know, it was we are the first thing that the Giants have ever branded as their own besides the football team. Um, they don't have a cheerleading squad. They don't have T-shirt launchers. They don't do anything like that. It is it really is about the. Um, about the football team for the Tish and the Mira family. So that impact um, and understanding of that, you know, quickly led to our second contract with the Knicks uh, because they understood the significance of of that. Um, And then, you know, from the Knicks, we got the Rangers, and, you know, it's just, uh, it's been a fun ride ever since then. It seems like such a success in that I think of so many young people that are doing DCI and WGI, and they just don't want to age out and they want to keep doing this forever and they're looking for some way to make a living doing this and then yeah wow what a dream come true not only do you get to keep doing it and put those skills to use but you also get to do it on 
like the biggest stage that <laughs> there is, you know, and like these huge sports arenas. Is there a history of drum lines in major sporting events? I feel like the first time I've really heard about it is you. Uh, I wish I could take, um, <laughs> you know, I, they're, the first one was actually started with the uh, Denver Broncos okay. and the Stampede, um, which has been around for a long time. Um, and every, you know, every team that has a drumline, they have a, a very specific image, a very specific feel. Um, you know, the music is, is different from team to team. Um, it's really based on the team's culture. Uh, and that's something we really pride ourselves on is, you know, from client to client, we've been able to create um, and plug in to that to whatever their culture is um, and whatever their game day experience is. We've been able to create a custom performance for them. And if you live in New York, what is the process of auditioning for these drum lines? Yeah, so we hold auditions um, uh, about quarterly. Uh, you know, it's it's really based on how many applicants we have. Um, we, we constantly have are getting submissions for um, for auditions, and now we do uh, everything privately. We used to hold these big open auditions, um, but now we've we found that it's more important that we. Uh, you know, equally as important to the the hands that people have is the performance aspect and really the personality. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've we've created these groups that, like I said, work in in very specific cultures, and we want guys that work well together. Mm -hmm. um, it's definitely about you know having a good group of of performers that you know want to be there. Sure. So if I was on this drumline, like, and. Would I, could I one night be, I mean, I know the sports teams exist at different parts of the year, but could I be like at an ABC party one night and then, or an event and then at a Rangers game the next night and then maybe um, at the Giants game the next day or something as, and as a member of that drumline, are you able to fit into each of those different show packages or cultures that you yeah, some of the, the bigger clients, um, we have kind of our set guys that play at each of those. But, you know, absolutely. I mean, on, on uh, there are specific Sundays throughout the year where we might do a Knicks game in the morning mm -hmm. um, and then, ha you know, get those same guys, throw them in a van and drive them out to the Giants game for that evening. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, and then the next day you might be on a stage for TD Ameritrade. You know, I mean, it's mm -hmm. um, it really is. Uh, you, you have to be very versatile and, and really a, an all-star performer to do what we do. That's we have actually a, a Facebook question from Alan Lang that you've sort of answered part of, but I'll just go ahead and read the question and let you answer the rest of it. Um, Alan said, what is the audition process like? Do the people in these drum lines make a living or is it mostly high school slash college performers? Uh, so the audition process, to be a little more specific, is uh, once we, we set the date, um, for the next audition, we'll we'll wrangle all the emails and, and submissions that we have, and we'll send them music, and then they have to come do a live audition. Uh, the they do there's a form of sight reading as well, um, and then there's actually a dance and movement side of it. Um, it's really you know we like I said, and then we want to create that. We're looking for that kind of well-rounded performer. Mm -hmm. um, it's not just about having hands to play the drums. Um, we. You know, one of the most rewarding things for me in in the New York area has been to supply um, employment for musicians. Um, you know, now that when we originally started, we were just doing drum lines. Now we're doing um, we have a big band, we have a, a cover band, we have a uh, steel band, we have a samba band, we have a, a kind of our own little take on a marching band as well that we do for the soccer team there. So, you know, supplying employment for those musicians and supplying those performance opportunities has just been really an honor for me and really the most rewarding part of, all, of it all. Did you envision that it would be that, what you just described, did you envision that from the beginning? Um, no, actually. Uh, I mean, we really wanted to do it because it, um, we saw a void in New York. Mm -hmm. um, at, that, at that time, there were 11 professional sports teams in the area. Um, so there was there was definitely a void. We didn't know that it was going to snowball to the level it yeah. did, but you know it's it's been uh, it's been every every client that we get or every large corporate performance. You know, it's there's always new challenges, and um, you know we're learning a lot. We're having a lot of fun. Yeah, well, I'm just thinking it's fortuitous that you named it Gallant Entertainment, <laughs> rather than like Gallant Drumlines or something. You know, because now it 
you know, it can be an, an umbrella for all these different ensembles that you described. Right, right. So, yeah, so it's, um, you know, we've done break dancers for events. We've done uh, samba dancers. We've done, you know, it's not just musicians anymore. It's really, like you said, the all-around entertainment mm -hmm. aspect. Yeah, and I remember I went to a, a Rangers game, right? Yeah. It was, like, four years ago or something. Yeah. I was, like, flying. I was, like, coming through New York for something, and... I just got in touch with Sean to say like, Hey, what's up? You know, you want to grab a coffee? And he was like, Hey, come to the Rangers game. And I was like, okay. And I went to Madison square garden and the drum lines just performing and they've got a huge crowd of people. And it was just really cool to kind of observe that whole process of, you know, going into the underbelly of the stadium and, you know, nice box seats and like, what a great gig, you know, you play, before the show at halftime or whatever, but then you, especially if you're a sports fan, like getting to enjoy the games and that's cool. But something that stuck out to me, cause I've used you as an example in studio class every year of like some, an example of someone who's doing something in percussion that nobody's doing, you know? And the thing that I always remember you saying is, yeah, we're getting to the point now where we can pay people's rent. <laughs> like that's awesome, you know? And so I, I think that that's, amazing that that's been part of the mission is to employ musicians yeah it's 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 been fantastic and you know my guys that um are my regulars and drum with me all, you know all year round i mean it's uh it's fun yeah you know so yeah do you ever get out there yourself uh no i'm much more on the on the other <laughs> side now so sean speaking of you i met you in sweden i don't know almost 10 years ago now probably right yeah, it was, yeah, probably uh, eight to ten years ago. It was a long time ago. And I remember you played, I think it was Garage Drummer by Jim Campbell. Yes, I did. Okay, I thought so. And I'm just wondering, like, now I imagine all this, you know, this successful business. Are you still playing yourself? Uh, my marimba and vibe are still set up in my living room. Um, I, 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 uh, I wish I was playing more. Um, you know, that's always the battle when you, when you get busy. Um, sure. but I do a lot more of the creative side of, of what we do in, in my business. So we do, um, I do a lot of the arranging, you know, some of the staging for the stage performances. Um, I really find enjoyment working with the client to make sure their vision is, is met, um, you know, through all those creative needs. So, you know, I'm getting my creative release, you know, just in a different form now. I had sort of a follow-up to that. And I guess actually Casey almost sort of stole my question. But I have exactly one experience with a corporate gig. Um, when I was an undergrad student, the hotel group that owns Holiday Inn and all the related hotels, it's called Intercontinental Hotel Group, had their international convention in Dallas. And they hired, uh, they did this, it was really corny thing where they played We Will Rock You, and they hired five antiphonal drummers to play along with a rock band. And I had a, <laughs> it's a long story, but a friend set this all this up, set all this up, and he told us we would get paid $500. And we're like, oh, so $100 each. And he's like, no, $500 each. <laughs> Whoa! And we, like, we couldn't believe it. And it was literally the entire commitment between rehearsal and everything was eight minutes. And we yes. had a catered lunch with the executives of the Intercontinental Hotel Group. Um, and it was like just a mind-blowing experience. And the guy that was sort of in Sean's role for all this, the sort of arranger and the one organizing it, was actually, uh, I think he had gotten his master's degree from IU and had studied uh, drum set with Steve Houghton. And he said that like at first when he started doing the corporate stuff, it felt sort of like dirty. <laughs> like uh, it's not, you know, most people aspire to be some sort of artist or something like that. And it's like, ah, but this kind of sucks. Like I'm playing We Will Rock You for a bunch of like, you know, rich people basically. But he said that it didn't take him long to realize that if he had one three-week-long corporate gig per year, that would pay more than the entire rest of the year for him to have a jazz combo. Um, and he could actually sustain a living on three weeks of work, truly work, a year. Um, and so he said, like, once he realized that, it was actually very beneficial to his sort of artistry, and he could actually do what he wanted in the other 49 weeks of the year. So could you talk about, like, I guess your initial impressions of getting into the corporate gig world? <laughs> Uh, uh, I would say that what the the experience that you just said um, is 
very accurate. <laughs> um, you know, we, we always strive to, as percussionists, right, we're always trying to strive for perfection and, you know, playing these uh, extremely hard pieces and, you know, learning all sorts of different techniques and um, touches on instruments and, you know, trying to perfect our craft. And um, not to say we have to dumb it down in the corporate world, but it's, um, it's a lot more striving towards what's entertaining and obtainable for the audience versus um, self self-fulfilling um, so it's uh, you know yeah we've, we've done the, the we will rock you um, for we did it for Lowe's last year um, you know and then we've done uh, we've also been fortunate enough to you know play the Superman premiere with Hans Zimmer on stage so um, you know we we were fortunate enough in in New York and in, in doing what we're doing that we were able to find that balance um, so yeah it's uh, you know the corporate stage shows are always large. Doesn't matter what the who the client is, um, and and our guys love it. I mean, we've flown. We did we did Walmart shareholders last year in Ar or last uh, last month in Arkansas, um, and we flew guys down and supplemented with uh, University of Arkansas uh, musicians as well. Um, so. You know, our guys are having a blast. We're traveling all over the country. Um, we went to Puerto Rico last year for an event. Um, yeah, it's a it's a good it's a good lifestyle on that corporate world. Yeah, well, if you cool. ever need someone to play, we will rock you. Ben knows it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's super hard part. <laughs> Megan, what do you have for us today? Yeah, so I, my segment is a little bit more of a conversation starter because. The guy sitting to my right knows way more about this than I do. Um, and also because there is not a lot of research about it. So I wanted to talk about the visual image of DCI groups because this year, as cores were, there's, it always seems to be a big deal for cores to kind of release their uniform. And I was looking, searching around on Facebook and different core websites, and some people will like record a video and then release it and make a big deal about that. And this year, a lot of the uniforms, several cores uniforms were quite different than what they were last year. And when Paul Rennick was on, we kind of talked about the influence of WGI on DCI with him. And I think we're definitely seeing that in the uniforms now. And the guard uniforms, if you're a DCI fan or you know anything about marching band, the guard uniforms usually change every year based on whatever the show's theme is. But there's a tendency for the main core's uniform to remain the same or updated slightly from year to year. And I think a lot of cores in the past have like kind of traditionally prided themselves in their history and their tradition based on this visual image of the people on on the field. And it seems like we have broken through this barrier and now that is maybe not the trend anymore. Um, and we can maybe put some pictures up of, of some examples of this, but specifically Madison Scouts, Santa Clara Vanguard, Boston Crusaders, if you look at their uniforms last year versus this year, they're quite different, quite different. So just so I had something tangible before I asked Sean to fill us in on this more, as I was, again, searching for some kind of article or, or something about this, really the only thing I could find is people in chat rooms on flow marching. Is that what you call it? Flow marching? Yes. Yeah. And which gets a little bit ridiculous. So I'm not going to share that. But instead, I found an, uh, a little article on DCI.org about drum corps outfits that would, or uniforms that would make good Halloween costumes. <laughs> <laughs> These are great, Megan. So I'm just going to share like the top 10. And if you just go to DCI.org and search this, you can find the pictures yourself. But number one is the Hungry Dragon, the 1990 Marauders. Is that how you say that? Mm -hmm. I don't even, I was not familiar with this group. Number two, World War One Flying Ace, 2001, 2011 Revolution show. Number three, a magician from the 2014 Lestenters. Number four, Harry Houdini from the 2010 Blue Stars. And a lot of these are guard uniforms, you know. Um, a flapper from the 2005 Phantom Regiment. A Vegas gambler from the 2012 Spirit of Atlanta. That one's pretty good. 
Here's an old one. This is the Big Top Ringmaster and Clown from the 1971 Cavaliers. Look at that. Number eight, a lion tamer from the 2009 Velvet Knights. I like this one a lot. Number nine, a baseball player from the 1994 Southwind show. And finally, number 10, a painter from the 1993 Blue Devils show. And you can keep going down and down and down. There are like 30 or 25 of these. So if you're looking for Halloween costumes, maybe check out this article and contact your uh, local drum corps to see if they have some old guard uniforms they'd be willing to loan you. Uh, but that's slightly tangential. And I'm wondering, Sean, since you probably had a large part as core director of designing in the say of the de design of this year's uniforms, what was that process like? And what drove you guys to take a drastic change from what was the uniform last year? Yeah, so uh, I know you know this, Megan, but this year marks our 50, Santa Clara Vanguard's 50th anniversary. Um, and one thing that we really wanted to do was we wanted to look forward and not look backwards. We very easily could have done a Vanguard's Greatest Hits show and, you know, Phantom of the Opera, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, threw everything in there which I think there's some disappointed alumni that we're not doing that, but that's another topic. You know, so we really wanted to look forward. And and so for us, what did that mean? That meant a new look, a new feel, make, you know, changing our, uh, adjusting our musical um, identity. So, you know, one easy change is obviously the uniform and updating the uniform. And with this year, with the addition of Andy Toth and Michael Gaines and, and you know, Scott Coder uh, playing more of a role in the program coordinator role, we, you know, we talked about all the elements, right? And, and Megan, you know this. I mean, uh, you know, the star for, for Vanguard people um, is is a must-have. You know, the sash across, you know, we with, with the Ouroboros going around the neck this year, you know, it's, it's a head nod to that. Um, we still have... The biggest thing for Andy and, and Gaines this year was that they wanted something that they could move in, have that, you know, they wanted, we knew that we were going to have the core doing some some somersaults and some, you know, moving all over these interesting props that we have. And so, you know, a, a traditional marching band uniform just wasn't going to work. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, having the uniform, something that's breathable and movable, um, the kids absolutely love them. Mm. Um, you know, it still, it still has, you know, definitely your, your traditional, you know, has the wings off the shoulders. It, um, it still has your look and feel of, of Vanguard, mm -hmm. but it's just new and headed in a direction. And one of the, the things I do want to mention in the new uniform is a lot of people are asking about why we went with a black V, mm -hmm. um, because historically we've done a black V, uh, you know, we wore a black V when, when Gail passed, we wore a black V when Myron passed. Um, it's always been to, to memorialize a, a human, um, someone that's close to the, the program. And, this year we wanted to wear a black vest to uh, remember all of the people that are close to the Vanguard family um, that have passed. So whether that's volunteers or you know Gail and Myron, um, heavy hitters in the program, it's it's um, it's everyone that's involved. And so that's our kind of our nod and and um, you know to the past. Mm -hmm. um, but the uniform. You know, for the alumni, uh, we have a very strong alumni base, and uh, one thing that we wanted to, uh, that we made the decision to do based on the show was to take the Aussie way, mm -hmm. um, and that was that was obviously a, a large deal. Um, but we knew that having kids doing somersaults and once again climbing all over these props that it's just wasn't going to work. work. Yeah. Um, and and the other side of the taking away the Aussie is that we really wanted to break down the fourth wall. So we really wanted to have the performers be able to emote to the audience and make a connection where in the past they've you know never been able to because they've been hiding behind mm -hmm. this bill. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's a new look for Vanguard. It's exciting. Uh, the kids the kids love it. You know, the, the judges love it. Yeah. Um, so it's uh, yeah. The it's a judges new day. definitely love it. They have been scoring very high, <laughs> and they're in the top. What do you call it? The top bracket for the big San Antonio region? Yeah, top three. We actually just got our seating, so we are going on second to last in San Antonio. That's a huge deal. So congratulations. I went down uh, to the a rehearsal 20, uh, like last week or something and saw a run through and the show is incredible. It's really, really, really cool. So check them out Thank if you. you can. Yeah, it's a great show. Is the Ouroboros... Is, is that just a, and for those of you who don't know, an Ouroboros is an old symbol of a, a, a serpent 
eating its own tail, supposed to symbolize rebirth and infinity and regeneration or, or something um, of that sort. But is the Ouroboros uh, this year's theme, or is that something that's been with Vanguard in the past? Is totally just my ignorance. No, that is this year's theme of the show. So our show is called Ouroboros, and, and exactly what you just said, rebirth, regeneration, um, re-image. It's a, it, heading into the, the 50th year. Um, like I said, we wanted to look yep. forward and not look back. And the theme was just a perfect fit. So we have these large circular props that have the imagery of the Ouroboros on it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's worn around the neck as well. Uh, the color guard actually on their uniform has it from hand to hand all the way around across their chest so they can make a large Ouroboros. Um, there's lots of serpent serpenty things throughout the show. Um, but yeah, that, that rebirth and regeneration of Vanguard is what we were really going for. Great. Sorry, Ben, I stepped on you. Yeah, well, I just had a couple little tangential things to this. I know that, speaking of uniforms, Paul Rinnick does the Dallas Cowboys, I think it's called Rhythm and Blue Drumline. And when Paul first got started with this, he was talking to like the person about what they want their uniforms to be. And I guess apparently Paul pointed to a Missy Elliott music video. <laughs> and said i want that so if you look at the uh cowboys drumline they their uniform is based off of missy elliott it's pretty funny um nice but also a couple years ago i I just googled to find the article in 2015 it looks like there's a violinist named kevin Yu that actually invented a high-tech tuck shirt and if you want to google and find more information about it please do but um basically this guy's philosophy was as a you know professional violin soloist he's wearing like a hot cotton shirt and it just doesn't work. And he needed some sort of like athletic material to allow him to, you know, breathe. And so uh, I know Bill Mersch bought one of these shirts. I don't remember hearing a follow-up report on how it went. Um, and the thing about it is that it's kind of weird to me that it's just a shirt because the second you put a jacket over it, it doesn't really matter. But I guess as a soloist, he wasn't wearing a jacket. So I don't know. It looks like the, the shirt is called the Gershwin, if anyone wants to look up that and find out more. Gershwin. I think Keith Aleo talked about that. I don't know if it was on the podcast or he and I were talking like by ourselves. I don't remember. Yeah. But yeah, that is something he would know about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it, I mean, it is yeah. kind of like if you think about it, modern percussion solists were a pretty uh, athletic bunch. If you think about the sort of motions that we have to make to play these instruments, and yeah, wearing a hot cotton tuxedo doesn't work. And I think most percussion soloists don't wear that sort of traditional garb. Like I don't think I've ever seen Colin Curry in a tux, um, and Evelyn Glennie wears like aluminum foil jumpsuits. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we're, while we're on the topic of Santa Clara Vanguard, uh, I'm also curious about kind of the story of you becoming core director, because Sean and I actually marched together. Um, well, March is a stretch. Yeah, marched. We were in the front ensemble together in 2006 when I aged out, and Sean still had a couple of years after that. So you're a young core director. I think it's incredible that you, you know, you're doing such an amazing job with this position, and obviously you're very capable. But like, what's the story behind that? Uh, so, uh, you know, when we marched, um, Charlie, Charlie Frost, mm-hmm. um, was on admin team. And then, um, so what happened was, is I marched, I marched in the organization 0405 cadet corps, 06 through 08 a core. And then I taught cadet corps 10 through 12 as well. Um, so I've been around the organization on and off for the last, you know, figure out what, however many years. Um, and so last year I was consulting with Zildjian during the summer and um, Charlie and I got in a conversation, and um, they were he was looking for someone to fill that role as, as he was going on into the executive director role. Oh, so he was director before? He was, yeah. Ah. yeah. So um, when Jeff Fiedler made his departure from, from the organization, Charlie was kind of wearing both hats, the, the executive director role and the core director role. I see. Um, so we, he was looking to fill that position, and we got to talking, and, you know, obviously it's like coming home for me. Yeah. Um, Every aspect of my life uh, can be traced back to my time in Santa Clara, so mm-hmm. it was a it was a no brainer for me to you know come home. Mm-hmm. It's cool to see you out there. You're doing a great job. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, you guys, I've got quite a shift for us for my topic. This one's kind of a doozy, so hang in there with me, <laughs> and yeah, let me know if uh, 
if I'm not clear, please throw out any questions at any moment. So recent graduate of Laurel and I is here at JMU. He posts this article from Vulture.com on Facebook. So that's called Streaming Music Cheat Codes, and the title is The Streaming Problem, How Spammers, Superstars, and Tech Giants Gamed the Music Industry. So the stuff I'll tell you about is from that Vulture article as well as from something called the Foundation for Musicians and Songwriters. So and just to kind of give you guys a quick premise of what this is you we know all how spotify and itunes works and imagine for a second okay if you look up i don't know say a very common song called maybe happy birthday on spotify and you stream it and play it for a birthday party who should get the royalty for that and also do you even know which version of happy birthday you played because there are so many and there are so many covers and did you find one that maybe had a custom name in it so there's a whole spotify channel dedicated to making custom happy birthday songs so if it's laurel's birthday i'm gonna go find the one that's happy birthday to laurel so there are so many right so anyway that's kind of what this is about but first let me just back up a little bit and talk about how these are paid out out. So most of this data is from 2014. It might be really old news to some of you who are hip to this type of thing. And, and some things might be different now. But so basically, Spotify as an example. is a $10 subscription fee. So to not have the ads, you're a subscriber, you pay $10. And three of those dollars, which is 30%, goes straight to Spotify. And $7 is left to pay out royalties. So that seems pretty sweet. In 2014, Spotify numbers, they were $37 million in revenue is what they brought in. 30% of that is $11.1 million, which Spotify kept, and that leaves them with $25.7 million left to pay out royalties. So how are these royalties split up? Well, the business model is something called the pro rata method. That's P-R-O-R-A-T-A. I have no idea what that means other than that it's the business model they use to do this. So you got this 20, $25.7 million left over, and they're going to divide that evenly amongst the amount of streams that there were. So how many times people streamed a song. And anybody want to take a guess how many streams they might get in a year? Total? Yeah. Like a bajillion. Trillion? <laughs> yeah. Th yeah, good. It's 3.4 billion that year. Wow. Okay, so you got 25.7 million divided by 3.4 billion, and this adds up to 0 0.007 cents. So per stream, they're getting not even a cent, right? Okay, so not too surprising. Let's pretend we have a hypothetical scenario here. So let's say we have a sample of 10 paid subscribers and they're each paying 10 bucks each, so there's $100 at play here. Mm -hmm. And that means they're giving Spotify $30 and they're giving artists $70, right? So let's say, just to keep it real simple, let's say nine of these subscribers are streaming Gary Burton, while just one of them is streaming, I don't know, something like uh, Nickelback, all right? Something bad. So let's, so let's use the average monthly stream as uh, what we'll use to figure this out. So the average monthly stream amount is 400 streams. So this is about an hour of music per day. And again, this is average not typical so that means something in uh, statistics but we'll just we'll leave it to keep it simple so this is the average of 400 so that means gary burton is getting these 400 streams for every nine users which is 3600 streams whereas nickelback is getting 400 per one user which is just 400 streams so you got 70 dollars of royalty money you're going to divide that by the total of streams which are gary burton's 3600 nickelback's 400, which is just 4,000, you divide that and you get 0.0175 cents per stream. So they're almost making two cents a stream, which in streaming money, that's like really good. So yeah. Gary Burton makes $63 while Nickelback makes seven. Cool so far? Yeah. 
Okay, so let's say that the one Nickelback subscriber is what they call a heavy user. And to put it into real life terms, let's pretend that they're, say, a local business and they're going to play their Spotify channel like all day. So let's say they're the official gym and racket club of Nickelback in, I don't know, Kentucky. And this hypothetical gym streams their Spotify channel 12 hours a day, seven days a week. So that's going to amount to 360 hours or 4,800 streams. So the average nine subscribers, the Gary Burton fans, are still doing 3,600, whereas the one heavy subscriber is now doing 4,800. So now we've got the $70 of revenue left for the to pay royalties to the artists, and we're now dividing that by 8,400. So this makes each stream worth much less. It's now worth 0.0083 cents. So they're not even making one cent, whereas before they were almost making two cents. So this gives Gary Burton $29.88 that month, and it gives Nickelback $39.84 that month. So this means that when you think you're supporting Gary Burton, you may be supporting Nickelback. <laughs> right. Okay, so um, moving on to how this gets worse and uh, worse and worse and more complicated. So this scenario is, this hypothetical scenario is with all participating parties behaving honestly, and yet there still seems to be this uh, resulting injustice. Gary Burton's payout is grossly diminished by Nickelback's success, and the listeners are not supporting the artists who they thought they were. In this royalty model, artists are incentivized to gather clicks or streams rather than fans. So imagine now if you add click fraud to the equation, meaning fake listeners are raking up the clicks. So this is, of course, a very old internet problem and has really been around ever since, you know, ever since internet traffic numbers have had any meaning. So, meaning, so, you know, people advertise their website traffic as uh, inflated numbers to attract more uh, advertisers or whatever. Mm -hmm. so, so these are bots set up by remote servers that can easily be created by anyone with a little IT know-how. So there's that against it. And then there's also this latest thing of how artists, even Spotify, allegedly are gaming the system. So people will create artist accounts with similar names and track titles to leech clicks off popular artists. Oh. Yeah. So a quote from the Vulture article is, Bob Seger, the bearded grandfather of mainstream radio rock, was not on Spotify until this month. But Bob Seger, with an A, S-E-G-A-R, instead of E-R, has been there for years. And this misspelled version of the Detroit rocker raked up 1.2 million streams on the cover of Turn the Page in the real Seger's absence. Also, Tool, the brooding art rock gods, remain still remain Spotify holdouts, but the DJ, Tool, with a capital L at the end, has been there. And this person has very Tool-like songs and has raked up uh, half a million streams with one of them. So other little click magnets and schemes include mistitled tracks that contain only silence, all sorts of cover songs, beats and chord wheels with big artist names on them, even though it's not the real artist releasing albums with the same track multiple times, countless covers of Happy Birthday with custom names, i.e. Happy Birthday to Stevie has over 900,000 streams, and fabricated artists also, uh, let's see, oh, and they fabricate artists to flesh out playlists. So this last one I just said, this is a claim that's been made against Spotify that they, they totally deny, but the idea is that Spotify is paying producers to bring music to them that sounds similar to their popular artists. They use these fabricated artists to save themselves many royalty checks to, to cut at the end of the month while thinning out the numbers of the actual artists. So if you create a station off of some band you like, they might flesh out the channel with other fake bands that they don't have to pay royalties to, and it's going to make your band that you think you're supporting make less money. So uh, the old Napster story MP3 download battle thing continues. Well, I just had two things. One, I know that Casey actually has a personal experience with this where someone ripped off a bunch of his tracks and put them on CD Baby 
and titled it like authentic Guatemalan marimba music to just get money <laughs> off of like the play count. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. And Blake Tyson, who did, who that also happened to and alerted me to the whole thing, he explained something to me that I didn't really understand at the time, and now I do, because I think our music was being used in one of these type of clickbait scams yeah. uh, clickbait's not the right word because clickbait is another thing <laughs> but in this type of like fleshing out other things or you know i mean it's so easy to put music up there now all you would have to do i mean you could just make you, you can just kind of make whatever you want and put you know lady gaga in the title call it you know casey's happy birthday lady gaga remix and you're going to get hits on all those big name things so yeah now i do understand what i think blake was trying to explain to me yeah and then there's a follow-up um on uh i just googled it to try and find the name of the band there was some indie band that i think they were it looks like the name of the band is wolfpeck and they were trying to fundraise money for a new album and the way they did it is they put up an album on Spotify that was just complete silence. Yeah. And they actually made $20,000 off of people streaming literally just uh -huh. silence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, I don't know how I missed that. That's totally was in one of the ways they do it. So people also use silent tracks. So I could just put up a silent track, call it, you know, um, poker face. whatever major pop star name and eventually it's going to get removed but not before I make some money yeah. so if you do that enough yeah you're going to make like plenty of money mm. so, so the examples you used Casey were of people paying the subscription fee what if you don't subscribe so you're like you can deal with ads uh-huh. Are you I think it's, it's really positively no just, affecting anything? It's really no different it's just the company is making their revenue to pay out through ads versus you personally paying them. But I think the it doesn't matter what you're streaming at that rate. It's just I, how the company is getting paid. The only okay. thing I saw about ads, Laurel, that's a really good question. The only thing I saw about ads, and this is incredible considering how long and frequent those Spotify audio ads you have to listen to are before you play your track, they only account for 10% of Spotify's revenue. Wow. So, yeah, so all the data I was doing in the little example of Gary Burton listeners versus the one other listener, yeah, that's only to subscriber revenue, and ad revenue is only 10%, and I think it does work really differently, supposedly. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, I all like, those people okay. that, like, I don't subscribe to Spotify, and if I ever use it, I only use it to look up classical recordings. Yeah. Which now I learned is not particularly helpful. Yeah. I, I think I would. People. I mean, I think I would subscribe. It seems like a pretty good deal, especially now with how obnoxious YouTube is getting. Like the ads on YouTube are just like relentless. You know, they're just really, really getting tiresome. But you think about how many times you're looking for a song and you say like, oh, what was that song I really liked? The, the title was like, oh, something like this and you don't quite get it right, you're probably gonna find some result. And according to what I was reading, I mean, it's very likely just someone's phony attempt it's, to it's grab a click. It's really funny to me that you mentioned Bob Seger because he has that song, Old Time Rock and Roll, and I was sitting in the airport months ago and I had that song stuck in my head because there was a guy that looked exactly like Bob Seger at the airport. It wasn't him, I'm sure. Um, but I got on my phone and I have Apple Music I subscribe to and I found the song, but I couldn't find Bob Seger's version and it was called like Bob Seger Silver, Silver Bullet Band or something like that. And uh, yeah. yeah, it was. I guess that's exactly what you're talking about. I listened to some cover version that actually sounded really good and very similar to the original, but sorry, Bob, he didn't make any money off of me. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. Well, and what's what's interesting is all these new rules, and of course it, it really changed when you guys probably remember Napster and Winamp and like the good old days where the floodgate was just open, you know? You could just, yeah. oh great, I'm going to go find all the music I, I could ever want for 16-year-old Casey's like freaking so excited. 
but um, that that changed things a lot. And then streaming was the next really big change. So they're trying to make all these new rules fit within the old models that all the record companies like understand. So they even have old terms in there like a replication. So a replication is if you, you buy an iTunes song and you download it, then you have it and it's on your hard drive, that's a replication. Whereas a Amazon Prime streaming service, you can download a song, but you can only pay, uh, play it through the Amazon Prime app, which is fine. I have that. I don't mind that at all. I totally like it. But, but that's, that's not, not a considered a, it's not considered a replication. It's considered a tethered uh, track. So, of course, you make a copy of a CD or something that's considered a replication, which is why if any of you get money from Spotify or iTunes, you always get more money from iTunes than Spotify uh, because mm -hmm. people pay more per track because it's a replication. Mm -hmm. Like I'll get like a dollar at a time from iTunes, but I'll get fractions of a cent at a time from Spotify. Wow. So, yeah, well, I don't the, know. Um, the, uh, what you were saying about the allegations that Spotify is padding playlists and creating artists makes me think of something that has been happening a long time, but I didn't know about that my sister informed me of because she interned in Nashville with a recording label. And uh, of course, Nashville is like country music capital. And so that's yeah. very much what she was dealing with. And um, her label did not represent Taylor Swift, but, you know, one very close by does. And, like, all of her albums always say, sold this many copies the first day. It's because the label buys them. Right. It's not actually, I mean, there, are probably, there obviously are real people going out and buying them, but it's the label so that they can market her as having done this. And what they do with them after, I don't know. They probably resell them or surplus them to some like discount store. I don't, right. I don't know, but I don't know. For sure. So, not too, yeah. huh? For sure. And that's an old trick, you know, to, right. inflate, to inflate your sales records. And then you can go to Madison square garden and go like, look, we're top selling. We sold this many. And then you have a tour set up and it just leads to more money, which leads to more sales later. So yeah, this, this stuff I'm talking about and that the article called gaming Spotify and gaming, the streaming services, it's the modern version of what you just described. Yeah. I think because a lot of the artists do it themselves too. They make extra tracks that the, the CD should have like merge those tracks together, but they'll make many, many short tracks just to try to get more streams and they'll pay people to uh, click extra and supposedly they'll hire these click bot servers and stuff like that. So, yeah. Very sad, isn't it? It's very I don't sad know. to me. Yeah, I don't know. It's just interesting. It's just like, I don't know if it's sad to me or not. I mean, I guess like the Gary Burton example is kind of sad. And I mean, the losers and all this, I think are us. Because on one hand, you had this nice, you know, you might have had this nice moment of satisfaction where like, oh, this is great. I'm paying 10 bucks a month. And like, yeah, Gary Burton's getting it. Yeah. No, he's not. You're you're subsidizing the the other numbers that are getting thinned out. So it's like a bummer. But one thing I, don't I, know. I do have to wonder, though, is there is that argument of like, you know, and Jennifer Higdon talked about this on her episode, which I guess no one saw because we lost it. But um like a lot of music i feel like on these streaming services wouldn't get played like people my students aren't going to go spend 20 dollars on a gary burton cd just because i told him it was good but if it is on there they'll go listen to it and so i don't know like with classical music especially like michael tilson thomas's recording from 1980 of some shostakovich symphony most people now i feel like aren't going to play but if i search for that symphony and it's michael tilson thomas i will play it so, like, I, I know it's not much, but at least it's something, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and, and that's, of course, the big debate that the labels are wrestling with. This is why Tool is still not on Spotify. They're just not sure if it's a good deal yet. And this is also why the yeah. Beatles, which I think we did a segment on this. Yeah, they held out so long. Right, the Beatles held out so long, and they finally are. So, like, they're kind of looking at this and going, like, yeah, is this a good deal or not? It's so hard to tell. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because are we just going to lose our fans entirely because, you know, the stream is moving and if you're standing still, you're actually getting pushed back and you need to be moving forward or or whatever. Mm 
Yeah. Sean, do you have any thoughts or anything? I hate to ignore you during this news no, report. No, that's, it's, uh, it's, I feel like I'm unplugged. I've been on tour for the last three, three, <laughs> three yeah. months. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's, um, it's crazy. It's just crazy, I guess. And it, and it really is sad to me, to, you know, to hear the depth of all that. Yeah, I, I feel the same way, and I, I feel unplugged too entirely, and I, I wouldn't have even noticed if our student hadn't have posted that article. Yeah, agree. What do you got there, Ben? Uh, Sean, I was wondering, could you tell us about, on a related note to all this, licensing and how that factors into drum corps shows or marching band shows? Uh, yeah, the drum corps shows, um, we, we have to get, um, in, in DCI, we're, we're partnered with a uh, licensing company called Tresona. Um, so all of our music has to be, uh, you know, approved and we have to get the rights for before, um, really before we start arranging it. Um, you don't want to waste composers' time and energy into what they're doing before um, we get the rights. But so um, everything DCI-related goes through Tresona, um, and we have the rights to everything. Uh, the other side, we, we handle the performance rights. DCI handles all of the sync rights for um, streaming and, and all of that stuff. Um, and then on the flip side of that, in Gallon Entertainment, what I do, we're, we're always covered under our sports contracts umbrella. So um, the venue like MetLife or Yankee Stadium or wherever it may be uh, has a deal with ASCAP or BMI to cover whatever they may want to play throughout the day. Cool. Um, so we do a lot of stuff with with Top 40 tunes, you know, um, where, where our guys are either playing under them or, you know, um, a arrangement of them, mm -hmm. which is all covered underneath the, the umbrella of the, uh, the venue. That makes sense. That's helpful. Yeah, very. That's work. So speaking of licensing, do you guys, or ha have you ever heard the term mechanical license? I'm sure Sean has. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yes. So that's, that's when you have permission to record, is that right? Yeah, and it, it can. There can be a lot more in there too. Permission to record, permission to distribute, stuff like stuff like that can be in there. But I always wondered, and I had to agree to a mechanical license for someone to record a piece of mine. I guess two years ago or so, and it was very simple, straightforward. But I was wondered, like, why the term mechanical license? there's nothing mechanical going on. Like, are they talking about the tangible record or, or, or what are they talking about? I learned in reading all this stuff that it's left over from old piano roll days. Oh, so right. Like you need a mechanical license wow. to put someone's song into right. a piano roll, which I thought was way cool. And like, we still use that term mechanical license. I thought it was really fun. Interesting. Nice. Well, that's like I know also like we say a piece for marimba with tape or, you know, pieces with electronics, pre-recorded electronics are called with tape. And that confused me for a long time. Right. Like it's there. We don't use tape anymore. But yeah, that's Scotch like tape. old, old <laughs> gaff tape. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, like another like weird old holdover that we don't say with pre -re Well, now some people do say with pre-recorded audio or something. But yeah. 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 I, I also forgot to mention Sh Sean said ASCAP and BMI, which which made me made me remember this. But in, in my example where I said the the gym owner was streaming their Spotify channel 12 hours a day. Yeah, they're still paying the same amount as the person just doing an hour a day. Businesses like that, they're going to play this copyrighted music for a public space. They're supposed to get a license from the rights provider like ASCAP, BMI, CSEC. They're supposed to get that, but there, uh, let's see, but BMI in 2014 sued, I guess, 23 businesses for not doing that sort of thing. And there are 27 point something million businesses in the US. So there's a big safety in numbers and most people just don't bother. Yeah. Well, and I guess one, one question I would have about that is like, like when I go into a business, I would feel, I mean, I guess if I was a lawyer, I wouldn't care, but like you can't go into a business and be like, excuse me, what streaming service are you using? And if you, pay, you know, like, I don't know. It's a very right. hard thing to turn up. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's just a hard thing in general because it's it's just going to be constantly shifting and moving, and it'll be interesting to see where it settles and when it settles. And it, it must be very disparaging as someone like trying to make money just doing that. 
I think for someone like me, it makes perfect sense because the place money is made is in publishing afterwards. So people say, oh, don't you want to monetize YouTube? Which, A, no, you don't because you're not making serious money until there's at least a million. Uh, and and it's, it'd be more worth just getting it out there because behind all that is uh, publishing, which is where there could be real dollars. But if you didn't have that, yeah, I mean, it just sounds like uh, every day it seems like a worse and worse idea because it's thinning out and there's more and more people doing it. And it's just harder and harder to break through, I imagine. If you want to make money, start a podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, this, man, the money we're making on this thing is just ridiculous. Ridiculous. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I'm curious if, if you have any, like, upcoming projects. Uh, right now, my focus is on DCI. Yeah. Um, you know, and obviously, we're heading, getting ready to head into the NFL season. Mm -hmm. um, so right now, there's a lot of planning and um you know, everything that goes in that planning, contracting, uh, you know, just rejuvenating all of our groups. Um, but yeah, and getting through DCI right now, being my first year in this role, it's, uh, it's Im very important to me that, um, we do well. Yeah. So, and you're on the road like the whole time, right? I am. Yeah. I've been on the road since May 19th. Wow. Mm. Yeah. That's crazy. And what, um, what are some of the big, for those of you who, uh, our listeners who don't follow DCI, what are some of like the big shows that are coming up and when is finals? Yeah. So, um, the big show we're, we're kind of all of the, the large people in DCI, all of the heavy hitters are starting to come together from their, from their regional tours. Um, so everyone is together, <clears throat> excuse me, um, next weekend in San Antonio. Mm -hmm. So that's our next big regional. And then the weekend after that is Atlanta and the weekend, uh, two weeks after that is Allentown. Um, which is the last big regional heading into DCI finals, which is the 10th, 11th, and 12th of August in India in Indianapolis. Excuse me. Um, so that's where everyone's everyone's gunning for right now. Mm -hmm. That's the end road. That's cool. I also just have one more question that uh, I've been curious about since you're so involved with the activity now. Um, I mean, have been for a long time, but are so involved at this very moment. You know, even Casey's topic, we're talking about how times are changing and things are changing. And I mean, when I was marching, we didn't really, I guess I had a cell phone on tour, but I definitely didn't have a smartphone at that point. How, so the, the main question is like, how has the membership change like how do you see this this next generation that's marching right now and for those of you who don't know you age out of, of dci when you're 21 so you know it's it's all you know really between the ages of 16 and 21 i think you said your average age is like 21.25 this year yeah so <clears throat> or 20.25 excuse me all really in this like really similar age um but then so that's the big question but the smaller question is do people bring laptops and cell phones, the membership? Uh, they do. Um, I, I would assume we're seeing a lot of the same similar changes as you guys are as college professors. You know, I mean, we have we have the same, uh, you know, age range as kids. Um, they, uh, it's a different style of teaching. It's a different style of tour for us. Mm -hmm. um, we, yeah, kids have cell phones, kids have laptops. Um, are there rules though? Like, can you check your email on a water break? Uh, we, we try to keep the phones off the field, okay. um, obviously out of the food line. That rule hasn't changed since, okay. since you've marched there. Um, so, you know, it's, we still, we still want the membership to be focused on, on the family that is within, um, you know, making sure obviously they get their fix of Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and, um, and we do our fair share of, of that as well as a, as a organization. Um, we let our membership, a uh, different section of the core uh, runs the Snapchat for various weeks. Um, so they kind of have that outlet as well. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's a battle. It's, a, it's definitely the, the kids are, are uh, interesting yeah. these days. <laughs> interesting. I, I have one for you, Sean. It seems like, at least from my vantage point, which is someone who's never been in DCI and uh, has never been involved, but I, I definitely really enjoy it. it. It seems like everyone is always trying to do something new, something progressive, but yet you kind of have to pay homage to this tradition. Like you have to stay 
classical in the in the in the core sense. What are your feelings on how theatrical things are getting? Is it getting too much, or is this change a good thing? We had, we had the same conversation with Paul Rennick, and I really enjoyed it. I'm just wondering what what you think about that. Um, yeah, I think it's uh, you know we it's headed in a great direction. The activity is is um, you know, not only obtainable for, you know, the Megan Arns who are obviously, you know, connected to the activity, they're, they're connected, uh, you know, it's, it's very obtainable for the Joe Schmoes of the world as well. Um, so WGI is definitely having its influence on DCI. Um, it's interjecting it with uh, all sorts of more entertainment aspects. Um, but, you know, that being said, we still want to stay true to our roots and, you know, make sure that the you know, for Santa Clara, music has always been the priority. Um, so having having that still be our foundation, yet you know pushing the limits of the visual aspect as well to make sure it's very entertaining. Um, yeah, I think it's it's headed in a great direction. We we are well aware of of staying true to who we are as as at Santa Clara, um, but also you know who we are and, and we're known. You know, it's in our name. It's the Vanguard. We're we're known for uh, trying new things and pushing the limits, um, and that's something we're definitely doing this here well man sean thanks so much for joining us today and i think it's time for game of thrones right megan yeah game <laughs> of thrones i'm gonna drive to michigan instead <laughs> <laughs> awesome spoiler alert everybody dies <laughs> it's real academic it's very serious yeah faculty party <laughs> yeah well thank you so much for having me on i really appreciate the time yeah, audience. Sean, ab absolutely, man. It's always good to see you, and it's just really cool and inspiring to see all the stuff you're doing. You know, just congratulations on big stuff. It's great. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Okay, Laurel, Megan, Ben, take it easy. We'll catch you at Game of Thrones. Sounds good. All righty.